and remain standing for our gospel lesson, which is also our sermon text from John chapter 8. This is the gospel of God. Then Jesus spoke to them again, saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. The Pharisees therefore said to him, You bear witness of yourself. Your witness is not true. Jesus answered and said to them, Even if I bear witness of myself, my witness is true. For I know where I came from and where I am going. But you do not know where I come from and where I'm going. You judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. And yet, if I do judge, my judgment is true. For I am not alone. And I am with the Father who sent me. It is also written in your law that the testimony of two men is true. I am one who bears witness of myself. And the Father who sent me bears witness of me. Then they said to him, where is your father? Jesus answered, you know neither me nor my father. If you had known me, you would have known my father also. These words Jesus spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple. And no one laid hands on him for his hour had not yet come. Then Jesus said to them again, I am going away and you will seek me and will die in your sin. Where I go, you cannot come. So the Jews said, will he kill himself? Because he says, where I go, you cannot come. And he said to them, you are from beneath. I am from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. Therefore, I said to you that you will die in your sins. For if you do not believe that I am you will die in your sins. When they said, then they said to him, Who are you? And Jesus said to them, Just what I have been saying to you from the beginning. I have many things to say and to judge concerning you, but he who sent me is true. And I speak to the world those things which I heard from him. They did not understand that he spoke to them of the Father. Then Jesus said to them, When you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am, and that I do nothing of myself. But as my Father taught me, I speak these things. And he who sent me is with me. The Father has not left me alone, for I always do those things that please him. As he spoke these words, many believed in him. Thus far, the reading of God's word. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Let's pray. Father, help us to understand and believe your word and to go out from here doing it, being loyal, faithful sons and daughters. We ask this in the name of Jesus and the power of your spirit. Amen. Please be seated. (laughs) 
In Zechariah 14, the prophet looks ahead to a coming day, the day of the Lord. And on that day, Zechariah sees a light that will shine during the day and during the night. And he sees living water flowing out from Jerusalem to the whole earth. The Lord will be the King of the whole earth. Zechariah says, and light and living water will be everywhere all the time. Of course, we see another picture of this at the end of the book of Revelation. Listen to what Zechariah 14, 7 and 8 say. It will be a unique day. A day known only to the Lord with no distinction between day and night. When evening comes, there will be light. On that day, living water will flow out from Jerusalem. So the Apostle John picks up this vision at the end of the book of Revelation, but he also picks it up in his Gospel. He presents Jesus as the fulfillment of Zechariah 14. Jesus is, in John's Gospel, the light of life and the water of life. I'll remind you of these themes briefly as I take you through a quick tour just of the first half of John's Gospel. You don't have to turn, just listen. John 1, 4 and 5. In Him was life, and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. John three nineteen, And this is the condemning verdict. The light has come into the world, and men loved the darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. John 4.10 Jesus answered her, the Samaritan woman at the well, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked Him and He would have given you living water. John 4.14 But whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up to eternal life. John 7. 37 and 38, on the last and greatest day of the feast, the Feast of Tabernacles, Jesus stood up and called out in a loud voice, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the Scripture has said, streams of living water will flow out of his heart. John 12, 35 and 36, then Jesus told them, for a little while longer, the light will be among you. Walk while you have the light so that darkness will not overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he's going. While you have the light, believe in the light so that you become sons of light. John 12.46 I have come into the world as a light so that no one who believes in Me should remain in darkness. And I didn't even read John 8.12. Of course, we'll come back to it. But these two themes of life-giving water and life-giving light weave in and out of John's Gospel. And they come together at the end of the Feast of Tabernacles in John 7 and in John 8. On the last day of that feast, Jesus says in John 7.38, as I just read, whoever believes in Me, the Scripture said, streams of living water will flow out of His heart. Then on the following day, as Jesus is speaking to the crowd gathered around Him in the temple, in the treasury of the temple, He says to them in John 8.12, I am the light of the world. 
He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. And it's, it's important to remember where Jesus is when He says this in verse 12. He's in the temple treasury, and in the center of the treasury, or somewhere in the treasury, were these giant torches that were set up and lit during this eight-day Feast of Tabernacles. These massive torches were several stories high, and they produced huge flames that illumined not just the temple, but the city of Jerusalem. They symbolized the pillar of fire that led the people of Israel through the wilderness and that hovered over the tabernacle, telling them when to stop and when to go. These candelabras were bright reminders of God's presence and provision for Israel through the pillar of fire in the wilderness. After all, the Feast of Tabernacles was a commemoration, a remembrance, a celebration of God's provision in the wilderness wandering. It had been burning every day for eight days of the Feast of Tabernacles, and now Jesus is standing among them in the same vicinity as these giant lights as he tells the people in verse 12 i am the light of the world i'm the true temple and the true lamp that gives light and life to the whole world and really what jesus is saying in verse 12 is that he is the great i am of the old testament as the great i am in the flesh he is the light of the world the beginning of verse 12 is actually a play on words. I didn't go into it much last week when I preached on this verse. Jesus is identifying Himself as I Am, which is the name that God gave Himself when He was talking to Moses in the book of Exodus. Jesus is claiming to be God who is the eternal light. The Pharisees are not spiritual, but neither are they stupid? They pick up on the tremendous claim that Jesus is making. They, they're putting it together. And they respond in verse 13. The Pharisees therefore said to Him, therefore, in light of what He just said, they said to Him, You bear witness of Yourself, so Your witness is not true. What's going on here? What do the Pharisees mean? What are they getting at? They have a point. Well, the Pharisees think that they have caught Jesus in a contradiction. And on paper, it appears they have. If you know your book of John, you probably know, remember what they're getting at. Turn back a few pages in your Bible to John chapter 5. And we're going to read verse 31. I encourage you to bring your Bibles to church and have them open during the sermon so you can look at the text and turn occasionally when we do that. John 5, 31. Jesus says in a different context, earlier context, if I bear witness of myself, my witness is not true. The Pharisees remember Jesus saying this. And now in John 8, 13... They're using it against Him. Jesus, you said yourself that if you bear witness about yourself, then your, your testimony is false. It's not believable. It's not credible. 
Well, here you are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony about your identity is not true. Finding contradictions in the words of Jesus has been a favorite pastime of God-haters for the last 2,000 years. You can get online or go to a bookstore and find all kinds of people, even some with PhDs, unfortunately many with PhDs, who have supposedly found all sorts of discrepancies in the Scriptures. And their favorite place to find them, of course, is in the Gospels. Because Bible skeptics hate Jesus in particular. And they love showing contradictions in the words of Christ. And this favorite pastime of unbelievers is not just a modern phenomenon. It goes all the way back to the Pharisees. It began even before the Gospels had been written. And John 8.13 records an instance of it. Pharisees are trying to trap Jesus in a self-contradiction. You said that if you bear witness about yourself, your witness isn't, isn't true. And here you are doing it. So you're not the light of the world. Well, did Jesus really contradict himself? Of course not. But what did Jesus mean back in John 5.31 when he said that his witness wouldn't be true if he bore witness of himself? In, con- in context, it's clear what he meant. He meant that if his witness about himself came from himself alone, came from himself by himself, it, if it originated in himself and not also in his Father, if his testimony were attempting to stand on its own authority, disconnected from his eternal Father, if it were in any way out of line with the testimony of the Father who sent Him, then it would be false. It wouldn't be true. Jesus was not saying that He could never testify about Himself and His identity as the eternal light. Of course He can. He was simply saying that His testimony is true because there's a second witness. Because it is in accord with what His Father also says about Him. It wouldn't be true if it were out of accord, if it were a lone witness. The Pharisees, just like modern Bible skeptics, they don't bother to interpret the words of Jesus in context. In John 8.13, they quote John 5.31 in isolation and try to trap Him with it. But the only thing the Pharisees prove here is that they can't see this bright light. They're standing right in front of the brightest light that has ever existed. And all they see is utter darkness. They're they're in dangerous and total darkness. And Jesus is handing them a light. A light that will enable them to escape this dangerous and totally dark place. The only thing they can say is, there's no light here. Your own words prove that you can't be the light. All the while, the light is shining on them and around them in all its brightness. Here's what it's like. Imagine that you see me talking with a 
British friend. And as you walk by, you hear me say to him, I don't use the word torch. That's all you hear as you keep walking by, that sentence. I don't use the word torch. And then a few weeks later, I find you in a dangerous tunnel that is totally dark. And I have a burning torch with me. And this burning torch in my hand is your ticket out of this dangerous tunnel. Your only way out is to take this torch and to allow it to lead you out. Follow its light. So I say to you, here, I brought this bright torch for you. Take it. Follow its light to freedom. And now imagine that you look right past the light at me and you say to me, I don't believe you. Just the other day, I heard you say that you don't use the word torch. But now you just use the word torch, so you must be lying. Your witness about the torch must not be true. You contradicted yourself. You've got no torch. How should I respond to this? One response would be maybe to explain the context of my earlier statement. In Britain, they call flashlights torches. And what I was telling this British friend is that I don't use the word torch that way. I don't say torch, I say flashlight. That's what I meant in context. Now here, take this torch that I've brought for you. That's right in front of you. Take it while you can and get out. Of course, this is an absurd illustration. No one in their right mind would respond to me that way in that situation. And yet, it's how the Pharisees respond to Jesus. Jesus comes to them with a torch. He is the torch. And He comes to them wanting to help them escape the dangerous and totally dark tunnel that they're trapped inside of. But the only thing they can say is, you contradicted yourself. You're not the light. You've got no torch. There's no light here. The eyes of their hearts are blind. Seeing, they do not see. The light of Christ can only be seen by those who have been given the eyes to see it. If you don't have spiritual eyes, you won't be able to see spiritual light. And if a person doesn't have spiritual eyes, if you find yourself engaged with a person, talking with a person who clearly does not have spiritual eyes, there's no way to prove to them that the light is there that the light is there to be seen by them. Imagine trying to prove to someone that the, sh- that the sun is shining right now by using scientific arguments and logical deductions. If I, were, if, if I wanted to prove to someone that the sun is shining right now, I would just take him outside or point him to those windows right there so he could see the sun in its light. If he comes up with crazy counter-arguments for why the sun is not actually shining, there's nothing I can do. All I can do is point him to the sun and its light and hope that he chooses to see it for what it is. 
The same is true with spiritual light. The light of Christ is not a conclusion that follows from certain premises. At least it's not primarily that. It's not a logical deduction. That's not how we come to see and know the light. It's the brightness of God shining on the retina of the human soul. You know it's there not because you conclude it from an argument, but because you can see it with the eyes of your heart. Can you see the light of life with the eyes of your heart? It is the light of the world shining in your heart. If not, I don't have any arguments for you. All I can do is point you to the light of the world and hope that you can see Him for who He is. If God has shined His light in your heart, then give thanks that He has given you spiritual eyes. God is the only one who can give spiritual sight to the spiritually blind. And if He has done that for you, then give thanks that you can see and ask Him to keep shining that light so that all the lingering cavities of darkness are driven out of your heart. We see a lot of that darkness that, that can reside in the heart in this passage in the heart of these Jewish leaders. Ask God to continue to drive out those places of darkness. In verses 14 to 30, Jesus defends his right to bear witness about himself. He defends his self-witness, his self-authentication as God's son. He explains why his testimony about himself is believable, reliable. It's true, Jesus says, because of what? Because of his relationship with the Father. Because of the nature of that Father-Son relationship. Jesus iterates and reiterates in this passage that he comes from the Father and he's going back to the Father and he speaks on his Father's authority and he does nothing on his own without the Father. I titled this sermon, The Origin and Authority of the Eternal, Eternally Begotten Son. I accidentally put an S at the end of origin. The Origin and Authority of the Eternally Begotten Son. What Jesus does in verses 14-30 to 30 is show that His origin and His authority are rooted in His eternal relationship with the Father. Now, sometimes when we think of origin, we think of something that has a beginning, just as we think of someone who is begotten as someone who has a beginning. But the Son does not have a beginning. He does have an eternal origin, though, in the Father, because He's an eternal Son. He's eternally begotten of the Father, but He never came into existence at any point in time. He's begotten but not made, being of one eternal substance with the Father. So his authority, think about that, his authority is not the greatest human authority that we can imagine. It's infinitely greater than that. The greatness that Jesus claims is not human authority, but divine authority. It's on a different plane, in a different universe than human authority. He claims to speak from God and for God and even as God. Three times in this passage, 
Jesus identifies Himself as the I Am of the Old Testament. You remember where the name I Am comes from, don't you? From Exodus 3, verse 14. In Exodus 3, Moses is out in the wilderness, you remember. He's tending the flock of his father Jethro. And all of a sudden, God appears to Moses out in the desert in a flame of fire in the midst of this bush. It's on fire, but it's not burning up. And it's the angel of the Lord. It's Yahweh Himself as He appears oftentimes as a theophany and an appearance of God. And He tells Moses to go back to Egypt to deliver His people from Pharaoh. And Moses says, who am I to do that kind of a thing? That I should... I should walk up to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt. And God says, don't worry. It's not about who you are. I am with you. And Moses says, but what if they ask me who you are? What if, what if they ask me your name? What do I tell them? God says to Moses in Exodus 3.14, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. In the Greek version of this verse, which was translated before Christ, I am is translated with the Greek words ego eimi. Ego means I. So we get our word ego from ego. And eimi means I am. So ego eimi is an emphatic way of saying I am. And it's how I am is translated in, in the Hebrew. And this phrase, ego eimi, emphatic I am, that's used to translate I am in the Old Testament, it's used three times here in our passage from John 8. First time is in verse 12, where Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Ego eimi, the light of the world. And then, he does it two more times in verse 24 and in verse 28. Look down at verse 24 first. Therefore, I said to you that you will die in your sins. For if you do not believe that I am, you will die in your sins. The word he in, in your English translation is italicized in the New King James Version because it's not in the Greek. It's added to our English translations to smooth out some of the awkwardness of just saying, Believe that I am. But it literally says, if you do not believe that I am, you'll die in your sins. People who refuse to see Jesus as the I am of Exodus 3.14 will die in their sins. Now look down at verse 28. It says, then Jesus said to them, when you lift up the Son of Man, when you lift Him up on the cross, then you will know that I am. Again, the He has been added to our English translations, but it literally says, when you lift up the Son of Man, they, you will know that I am. The lifting up that Jesus is talking about is His being lifted up and nailed to a cross. The cross, you see, is where the identity of Jesus comes into sharpest focus. The cross is where we see Jesus as I am. The cross is where we discover the true character 
of our humble and sacrificial God. Now during the last part of this sermon, I want to give you just, we're not going to go verse by verse through this whole thing. I want to go through it from different angles and try to give you a handle on the passage by looking at it from, from different angles, particularly two angles. First, let's look at how Jesus defends his authority. And these, and these two different angles are going to be really, one is Jesus and one is the Pharisees, and we're going to see two different pictures of what it means to be a teacher. We're going to see faithfulness and faithlessness. We're going to see Someone who knows the Father and is with the Father and who loves the Father and who does the Father's will. And we're going to see a group of teachers who don't even know the Father or His will. So first, let's look at how Jesus makes a fourfold defense of His right to bear witness about Himself. He makes four appeals. Number one, Jesus appeals to His mission. Verse 14 says that even if I bear witness of myself, my witness is true. Why? Because I know where I came from and where I am going. Jesus knows where he has come from. He knows where he's going to go after he dies and is risen from the dead. He knows that he is the one sent into the world by the Father to engage in a mission for the Father. A mission that will culminate in his exaltation, his being lifted up on the cross. So first he appeals to his mission. Number two, Jesus appeals directly to his father's presence, his father's closeness, his oneness with him even. Look at what Jesus says in the second half of verse 16. I am not alone, but I am with the father who sent me. Literally, it says, I am not alone, but I am the Father who sent me. I am not alone, but I am the Father who sent me. This is awkward, which is why we, our, our translation smoothed it out, but it powerfully, in its awkward way, it powerfully expresses the relationship between Jesus and the Father. I am the Father who sent me. This relationship is the heartbeat of Jesus' life and ministry and mission. There can be no higher claim. I am not alone. I and the Father who sent me. In other words, I and the Father who sent me are one. Christ's unity with the Father means that His teaching and judgment are the Father's teaching and judgment. This claim demands a decision. Either we accept this and believe, or, or we reject it and we disbelieve. We're in unbelief and in our sins. Number three, Jesus appeals to his divine origin. He says at the end of verse 23, I am not from this world. Unlike the Pharisees, Jesus does not originate from this present order of things. He speaks from the standpoint of one who has come from the heavenly realm, the heavenly world. Number four, Jesus appeals to his future lifting up. Verse 28, when you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am and that I do nothing of myself. In other words, you will see me submit to my Father's will all the way to the point of dying 
on a Roman cross. As you lift me up there, then you'll know that I am. You'll know that I am the great I am in the flesh. You'll know that I don't do anything except what God the Father sent me to do. You'll know that I don't speak anything except what the Father taught me to say while we were spending eternity together. So you see how Jesus roots his origin and even his authority in the Father, in his relationship with the Father. He and the Father are the two witnesses. So Jesus appeals to his mission. He appeals to the Father's mission for him. Then he appeals to his Father's presence, his oneness with him. He appeals to his divine origin as the eternal Son of the Father. And he appeals to his obedience to the Father to the point of death on a cross which Jesus refers to as his exaltation, his being lifted up. These are the appeals of a teacher, the teacher, who confronts the Pharisees, who confronts the crowd gathered around him in the treasury of the temple, and who confronts us today with this uncompromising claim, I am the light of the world. By contrast, there's another kind of teacher represented in this passage by the Pharisees. Jesus characterizes them in five ways. Number one, they are ignorant of Jesus' mission. In verse 14, Jesus says of them, you don't know where I come from and where I'm going. They don't understand Jesus. They don't understand what he's about. They don't understand his gospel. His mission is opaque. They only see the outward form of it. And when they look at the outward form of Jesus and his ministry, it is very unimpressive. It is not what anyone expected from the Messiah, from the King. And it will especially seem unimpressive when he goes and he dies a humiliating death on that Roman cross as he's lifted up. Number two, they judge by merely human standards. Verse 15, Jesus says that they judge according to the flesh. They judge according to human standards. They, they don't experience the intimate oneness with the Father that Jesus knows, that Jesus experiences. And because of this, they're left at the mercy of their purely human judgments. Number three, they're ignorant of who Jesus is and therefore... They don't know who the Father is. Now this was an extremely offensive claim that Jesus makes in verse 19 when he says, you know neither me nor my Father. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. The order here is important. If you knew me, you would know Him, the Father. Now as, as the teachers of Israel, they professed to know God. They were truly the ones who knew God. They were, they were supposed to be the official guardians of the truth, of God's law. But actually, they were strangers to the living God. They didn't know God at all. There is no other way at all to the Father except through the Son, and they didn't know the Son. And number four, since they don't know God, they can't go 
where Jesus will go after his death. Look at verse 21. Then Jesus said to them, I'm going away and you will seek me and you will die in your sins. Where I go, you cannot come. And their response to this, of course, was a sarcastic one. They said, oh, well, we, we know where we're going. We're, we're going to go to paradise. Uh, that, you must not be going there too, so you must be going to kill yourself because they believed that those who kill themselves certainly would not go to paradise. So they sarcastically say, oh, is he going to kill himself so that he's not going to be where we are in paradise? But you see, they, they only show that they are in utter darkness. Number five, they are of this world. Unlike Jesus who says, I am not of this world. Verse 23, you are from beneath, from below. I am from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. Their, their horizon is limited by their worldly nature. Their merely human judgments ref, reflect the reality that they are merely worldly men. They have never been reborn from above. They need to be reborn from above. They need to believe in Jesus. In closing, I want to draw your attention to that haunting phrase that Jesus says three times. You will die in your sins. In verse 21, he says, I am going away and you will seek me and you will die in your sin. And then in verse 24, he says it twice. Therefore, I said to you that you will die in your sins. For if you do not believe that I am, you will die in your sins. There are two ways to die. There are two ways in which every single person will die. Either you can die in your sins or you can die in the Lord. Everyone is in one of those two camps. Revelation 14.13 Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors and their works follow them. To die in your sins is the greatest tragedy. To die in the Lord is the greatest blessing. It's the difference between eternal death in hell and eternal life in heaven. And the reason you can have eternal life is not that you've done anything to please God. The key to your eternal life, the reason you can have eternal life, the reason you have it now and will have it in its fullness one day is what Jesus says at the end of verse 29. I always do those things that please Him. I don't always do what pleases Him. You don't always do what pleases Him. No one ever does. No one always does, I should say, what pleases the Father. But Jesus always did. And he still does. What pleases the Father? He never strayed from doing what pleased the Father. And the most important act that, that he did that pleased the Father was to bear your sins on the cross. To be lifted up onto the cross for your salvation. 
That pleased the Father for Him to do that. The cross is where you look to know who your God is and what He's like. You look to Jesus, and especially you look to Jesus on the cross to know who your God is and what His character is, what He's like, what He's all about, what drives Him. The cross is why we can say with assurance that He loves to have mercy. As our scripture of assurance says, he is a God who loves to show loving kindness, mercy, chesed, his faithfulness, his loyalty to his people and saving his people. Jesus says in verse 28, when you lift up the son of man, when you exalt me by nailing me to the cross in accordance with my father's perfect plan and perfect will, then you will know that I am. Then you'll know who God is and what He's like. And you'll know that I am He. I'm God in the flesh. Jesus, you see, is the express image, Hebrews 1 says, the the perfect imprint of God in human form. And the cross is where Jesus imaged His Father most perfectly. We don't just get to know Jesus when we look at Jesus on the cross. We get to know His Father. We get to know the heart of our Father. So if you want to know what God is like, look to Jesus. Look to the cross. Look to the cross and put all of your faith, all of your trust in Him. Let's pray. Father, please guard us from unbelief. Protect us from the evil one and the darkness that he tries to drag us into. And drive out the darkness with the light of the world, your son, Jesus Christ. Amen.